Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So welcome to a different kind of how do we fix it. In almost every episode, we interview expert guests. Yes, but in this show, I'm interviewing an expert guest, you. So today's topic is what's clean, green, and works to cut carbon with Jim Meggs. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? So before I ask you some questions, Jim, I think it's helpful for listeners if you explain why you're qualified to write the articles that you have, uh, which have been largely recently about green energy, uh, which involves a, a fair amount of technical and even engineering knowledge, right? Yeah, well, no journalist can claim to really be an expert. And we talk to the experts and we try to come away with an understanding that's useful for our readers, our listeners. So I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I've been passionate about the environment since I was a teenager. I attended the first Earth Day. And like most environmentalists back then, I was passionately anti-nuclear power. You know, my feelings change over time as I learn more. And then for about the last 20 years, my journalistic work has focused a lot on technology, energy, uh, and technological approaches to to environmental problems. I was editor of Popular Mechanics, and we did a ton of coverage of these issues there. And now I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which, as a lot of our listeners know, is a a right-of-center think tank that looks for you could say semi-libertarian answers to social and environmental problems. How do we harness uh, free markets and maximize personal freedom while we attack some legitimate and serious problems? So let's start the interview, my grilling of you, Jim, with current headlines about the growing energy crisis in much of the world especially in Europe, with shortages and soaring prices since Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year. As we record this episode, uh, one front-page headline reads, Europe's industry reels at gas shutoff. The region has relied for decades on a steady supply of Russian gas, but, but no longer. And 
you know, Jim, it's really hard to overemphasize just how bad things could get in Europe uh, this winter. For instance, the Wall Street Journal in one article says the question is whether the current pain is temporary or marks the start of a new era of deindustrialization in Europe. I mean, that that's kind of incredible. So, so let's start with that, Jim. What's happened in recent months? Yeah, the short answer is that Russia has been closing the spigot on the natural gas and some other uh, fossil fuels that it supplies to Europe in general and especially to Germany, which is most dependent on those sources. But what's happened since Russia invaded Ukraine wouldn't have been possible if not for what's been happening in Europe over the last two decades. Germany at the year 2000 had more than 20 nuclear power plants, and that supplied about 30% of their electric power. But then the Green Party gained power and they embraced an environmental agenda that sounds good. You know, we're going to invest heavily in wind and solar. We're going to try to retire our coal. But it was not the Green Party. It was a moderate conservative, the Christian Democratic Chancellor, Angela Merkel, who led Germany for 16 years. She was the one to decide to shut down those nuclear power plants after the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Exactly. In 2011, Starting in about 2001, there was a long-term plan to limit and shut down nuclear power in, in Germany, heavily influenced by both the Social Democrats and the Green Party. But then after 2011, they accelerated the plan to close plants. They closed a bunch of plants immediately and shortened the lives of others. They also banned fracking. And the idea was they were building so much wind and solar that wind and solar would, it wouldn't be a problem because wind and solar would replace these sources. It'd be clean, green. A, a lot of the rest of Europe followed similar plans, not quite to the same degree, but they also closed uh, nuclear plants. They tried to get off fossil fuels. They invested in wind and solar. The real outlier here is France, which gets most of its electricity from nuclear power and has been able to stand somewhat aloof from, from these problems. But here's the reality and what's, I think we need to, the lesson we need to take from this, it's one thing to say that you're going green, but the reality was while they were building all this wind and solar, they were actually relying more and more each year on on fossil fuel from Russia. Their natural gas imports went up every year. And Europe as a whole today gets 40% of its natural gas from Russia. And right now, that looks kind of stupid, given Putin had invaded part of Ukraine as long ago as 2014 and was making a lot of aggressive noises towards uh, not only Ukraine, but other former Soviet republics for, for several years at least. Absolutely. And a lot of people have pointed this out over the years, but it was not easy advice to listen to. And what concerns me is it's you can argue about policy, but to not face the reality that a certain policy isn't working to me is is incredibly dangerous. And we're seeing the impact of the, those risks that they've taken today when they're literally talking about closing down factories people not being able to heat their homes. They are facing a real crisis. And the rest of the world, to some, to a lesser degree, is also f facing real energy problems, which trickle out into other fields, like they're 
Will they be able to afford to make fertilizer? If there's not enough fertilizer, what happens to our food supplies? Before moving away from Europe, it's worth pointing out that overall the European economy is vast. It's somewhat slightly bigger than the United States. And that if Europe really faces a, a big crisis this coming winter, that could uh, help spark a global recession. So this affects all of us. We're all connected. Let's go next from Europe to this country and especially to California, which has also faced shortages and last minute appeals by state officials for conservation just in recent days. In fact, the state could face blackouts in the next couple of weeks. So what's happened in California and why has there been a recent dramatic about face by Democrats who run the state? So we've got bad news here and good news. The bad news is that California has pursued kind of its own version of Germany's policy. Heavy, heavy investment in wind and solar, efforts to ban or reduce the use of fossil fuels at the same time that they've been closing down their nuclear power plants. The result has been that California consumers pay the highest electricity rates in the country, which has driven out a lot of businesses and, and you know, of course, hits poorer people the hardest. But they also have a grid that's less reliable, more prone to blackouts. Now, everyone in California has woken up to the fact that they made some dubious calls about their energy supply. That's why I'm so impressed that that state lawmakers and Governor Gavin Newsom have completely reversed course on nuclear power and where they were once fighting to shut down Diablo Canyon, their last nuclear plant, a really big plant that produces about 11% of their um, electricity in the, in the state and a huge portion of their carbon-free electricity. Th that plant was supposed to shut down in 2025 under pressure from activists and the government. And now they've turned around and they're trying to save it. And that would be a real change in, in the, the mood, you know, in the country regarding nuclear power, which longtime listeners know I think is, is our best, most reliable source of uh, zero carbon energy and which pairs very well with wind and solar if you're attempting to decarbonize your power grid. Before we talk about clean energy and climate change, uh, because until now we've just been talking about the reliable supply of energy, uh, I want to ask you a really basic question, Jim, which is why does our modern society need so much energy? I'm asking that because this question is raised from time to time. Yes. In fact, there is a big wing of the, the more... Uh, more progressive end of the environmental movement that really it has its roots in almost a 19th century romanticism that we should all live closer to nature, that modern industry and development are bad things. There's a whole segment of people who argue for degrowth. They think we're too rich, we're too greedy, we consume too much. I feel that way myself a little bit sometimes when I see people driving around in their giant pickup trucks and stuff. But the, the idea that the solution to these problems is enforcing essentially a kind of poverty, uh, reducing our energy consumption, reducing... Our, our standard of living, I think that could terribly backfire, and especially it's unfair to the poor. Unfair to the poor. Why? 
if you shut down new natural gas pipelines, well, it's going to be more expensive to heat your house in New England with natural gas. And that's what's happened in New York State and other areas. If you limit oil drilling, gasoline's going to be more expensive. Now, you might think that's a good policy, but you need to be honest that it's not whether you pay you know, $35 or $45 for a tank of gas. For most upper middle class people, that's not a big deal. But for somebody who can barely afford a car, that might be a very big deal. A majority of people in this country are just getting by week to week and are very concerned about daily costs, including the cost of energy. Yes. I'm also an advocate for more efficiency. And I'm an advocate for a carbon tax that would help raise the price of energy, rebate the money from the tax to the public, and which would benefit lower income people, but would help the market find ways to, to promote more efficiency. You also say that we need more energy production, especially zero carbon electricity. We need more electricity in particular. A lot of our hopes to decarbonize our economy come from electrifying things that are currently done with fossil fuels, like home heating, like some of our transportation, some of our industrial processes. If we had zero carbon electricity and we had more of it, we could do all those things economically and without raising emissions. Just in case you don't listen to all of our shows, you may not know that we've done a lot of uh, episodes on climate change. And both you and I, Jim, feel that we really need to take strong and practical steps to reduce carbon emissions and, and fight climate change. So let's talk about green energy. Has the focus on wind and solar by the environmental movement and, and many politicians who feel strongly about the need to reduce uh, our uh, emissions of carbon, has that come at the cost of a reliable supply of reasonably inexpensive energy? Yes. And that's not a theory. You can just look around the world and see the areas that have made the biggest investments in wind and solar are the areas that are struggling to supply affordable energy. Part of the problem, it's an obvious problem, and yet it gets overlooked, is intermittency. This idea that we can just seamlessly go to wind and solar, in fact, it masks just how difficult this challenge is because these sources are not just intermittent, they're also unpredictable. And what that means is it's not enough to build massive capacity of wind and solar. You have to overbuild capacity. You have to build enormous thousands, hundreds of thousands of miles of new power lines to get that power from the remote areas where your wind turbines might be to your urban areas where it's going to be consumed. And you also still need another backup system that is reliable. And what that's meant here, just as, as it has in Germany, is more natural gas power plants. They've built three big natural gas power plants in the Hudson Valley region where I live. And, you know, when they shut down the Indian Point power plant in 2021, we were promised that wind and solar would fill that gap. But in reality, we've seen that that power now is coming from these three natural gas plants, which means that even while we talk about climate in New York State and we have very ambitious climate goals, we're going backwards and we're emitting more carbon today than we were three years ago. Just to be clear, the Indian Point 
uh, plant that you mentioned is a, is a nuclear or was a nuclear power plant. Yeah. The U.S. government's Department of Energy says nuclear power right now accounts for nearly 20 percent of electricity generated in this country. You wrote in your recent article for City Journal, Jim, that nuclear energy is the only technology to dramatically reduce the nation's carbon footprint. Now, skeptics would say that's that's a bit of a reach to say only. So so make the case. There's only one modern industrialized country that has dramatically reduced its carbon footprint. Well, really, maybe two. And that is France. Norway has also done a good job. And Norway, because of their terrain, happens to be blessed with a lot of hydroelectric resources. But France went on a nuclear plant building boom in the, in the 70s and 80s. And now they get about 70% of their electricity from nuclear power. And that has been a godsend for them in terms of inexpensive, reliable power and in terms of low carbon emissions. On the other hand, no country has followed the path of primarily powering the grid from wind and solar and reducing their carbon emissions through that route. Germany's come the closest they've tried. Their emissions have come down some, or at least until the recent crisis. But now they're back to burning coal big time. And while they were reducing their emissions uh, to some degree, they were also increasing their reliance on natural gas. So wind and solar ha definitely have their place. And the prices of, of wind and solar are coming down, which is great. But they can't do the job alone. And the higher proportion of your grid that's powered by wind and solar, the more expensive they become because this intermittency problem becomes more and more overwhelming. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Before we go back to our conversation, Jim, you have a recommendation that directly relates to what we're discussing. Yes, and it is a book that I am reading or actually listening to uh, at the moment by the great Canadian environmental scientist Vaclav Smil, and it's called How the World Really Works. Smil has written something like 40 or 50 books about energy and the environment. And what this book does is it breaks down how our modern society really works in terms of energy usage. And what he shows again and again is these questions are complicated. Like, wow, how much energy goes to making fertilizer? How much of our energy goes to making steel and cement and other energy intensive products? And how hard would it be to turn that from fossil energy to some other energy source. So I think it's it's a great book for anybody who's interested in these questions to take a look at. We'll have a link to that book with more information on our website at howdowefixit.me. We continue our conversation. Nuclear power needs subsidies to produce electricity that's as cheap as other sources. You generally support smaller government, Jim, and, and that means big reductions in government subsidies. Does nuclear power present you with, with, with a difficulty, with a, with a contradiction to your uh, economic and political beliefs? There's this idea that nuclear power is so heavily subsidized by the government. It's actually not true. The subsidies going to wind and solar are more than 100 times greater per unit of energy produced. So... It's not true that nuclear power only exists because of these massive subsidies. 
but there have been certain kinds of subsidies over the years in certain areas, especially in, um, in past decades. Today, the nuclear plants that exist today, for the most part, produce affordable, reliable power, that is, and they are profitable. So it's not, especially now, as electric rates are going up, they're, they're quite profitable. So the idea that all these plants are only there because of some massive subsidies is not really correct. Under the Trump administration and under the Biden administration, there's been a fair amount of support for more research and development in the next generation of nuclear power. You know, I'm generally a skeptic of government spending a lot of money on on businesses that can really backfire. In our current situation, some modest subsidies for nuclear might help save us from some real disasters. Jim, in your writing, you take aim at radical environmentalists. The headline of a recent piece that you wrote is, quote, the green war on clean energy. In your view, what damage has been done? I am really, it drives me nuts when people successfully advocate for policies that sound good and then they backfire and they do more harm than good. And I was kind of inspired to write that and and to some of my recent coverage by our interview with Zeon Lights, the British environmental campaigner who went from being a, a, a rabidly anti-nuclear climate extremist to someone who now argues that we need nuclear power in the mix and we need to make sure that, that poorer people in particular do have the energy that they need to live productive lives. Just to point out, She's a socialist in Britain, yeah. and uh, is a, so, so it's not like she's some kind of conservative. No, who's, no she who's, didn't become uh, some Milton Friedman acolyte overnight, uh, and, but she's pragmatic about what works, and she's really concerned about climate, and she wants the problem to be fixed. So a lot of my coverage comes from that point, and as someone who's a little bit more of a libertarian or conservative, I feel that that because the left often looks to government policies to solve problems— I think those policies tend to be harder to undo and harder to fix than market-based policies because, you know, you write a policy into law and it's very difficult to get a consensus to, to, to change it. Your writing on this and other matters often challenges conventional wisdom, but when it comes to destructive conservative policies related to climate, conventional wisdom is, I believe, correct. For 20 years, powerful conservatives, including congressional leaders and two Republican administrations under Bush and Trump, engaged in climate change denial. More than that, they ridiculed efforts to address climate change. So at least in this case, isn't conventional wisdom right? It's half right. There's been a lot of climate denial on the right. And some of that denial has been funded by fossil fuel groups and industry. And, and you know, I'm opposed to that. But the old idea that all conservatives are just have their arms folded and ridicule the idea of climate change is really no longer the case. There's still too many people like that. But over the past few years, there's actually been a lot of movement uh, among conservatives For example, in 2021, a very conservative congressman, uh, John Curtis from Utah, launched what he calls the Conservative Climate Caucus in the House. And more than a third of GOP House members signed up for that. Mitch McConnell has been very outspoken about climate issues in the Senate. Now, the policies they support 
may not be as aggressive as those that the left would support. But the idea that conservatives are no longer willing to say the word climate change, it's no longer the case. There's still a lot of progress to be made, but there is some areas where we can find common ground and consensus. And in fact, there were a number of environmental bills passed under the Trump administration involving research and development and other areas where Democrats and Republicans came together to vote for increased funding for research into nuclear power, supporting habitat restoration, and other things that are climate-oriented. And I think that rather than saying, okay, who's bad? And yeah, you, you, you know, I might be guilty of this myself sometimes. Whose ideas are wrong or who's bad? Let's talk about what policies work and can we find some common ground where we can get both sides together on this? And I think there'd be more support on that for that on the right than, than might be apparent from, from decades past. I don't want to labor the point, and, and, but I will respectfully disagree with you about your judgment on Republicans generally in Congress and, and Mitch McConnell in particular. Way too often they have blocked any kind of dramatic effort, uh, even an effort which would, for instance, rely on a carbon tax that might, in theory, appeal to conservatives uh, to try and reduce America's reliance on, on fossil fuels. But Let's deal with the final section, which is which is the future and the role played by innovation. What are the hopes for some innovations that could really make a big difference? For instance, let's start with uh, nuclear power. Are there plans in the works for safer, smaller, um, cheaper forms of nuclear power? Yes. Actually, this is an incredibly exciting area that is not only getting some support from across the political spectrum in Washington for research, but also attracting private capital from the likes of Bill Gates and, and others. So there are several categories of new types of nuclear reactors that I think are very promising. One is what they call a small modular reactor. This is basically a scaled down version of the large light water reactor we would see at a conventional nuclear power plant. And But instead of, of being gigantic and putting out a thousand megawatts, it might be the size of something that could virtually fit on the back of a flatbed truck or maybe a, a couple of trucks and uh, and and generate 80, 100, 150 megawatts. And what's cool about these is you could, you could say, take an old coal-fired power plant that's shut down, install a few of these factory-built small modular reactors at that plant and hook them right up to the existing power line. It's great to hear your enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I, love, I love it when you say, it's really cool. And it's, hmm. it's very exciting. Uh, on other energy sources, what about carbon capture and, and, and battery storage? I've read hopeful reports that there really could be some big improvements coming along. Yes. So uh, let's start with batteries. The whole hope of wind and solar, when you talk about the intermittency problem, is, well, of course, we'll have these really cheap batteries that will store the power from your solar facility or wind, and then you can deploy it as needed. 
And that's happening. The price of batteries is falling, but it doesn't fall like at a Moore's law rate. You know, it's not like a computer chip where they the computer chips for many decades got roughly twice as powerful every two years. There are physical limits to how much energy you can pack into a battery. And there are also enormous amounts of exotic expensive materials like lithium that need to be mined in China and other places with not not the greatest environmental uh, standards. So the notion that we're gonna we're gonna build massive, you know, complexes of of batteries is actually kind of fanciful. We shouldn't be crossing our fingers and assuming that this technology is gonna be ready in time for us to go to an all wind and solar grid. There are a lot of people who are making that gamble. They, they think we just build wind and solar as fast as we can. And by the time we need it, we'll have these batteries ready, which is a little bit like jumping out of the airplane and saying, I'll finish sewing my parachute on the way down. Okay, let's go next to carbon capture, which is uh, capturing emissions of carbon from the atmosphere or preventing carbon from getting into the atmosphere in the first place. What kinds of breakthroughs are possible? There are a whole array of innovations in, in carbon capture. The simplest would be to just scrub the CO2 out of the, the gases, you know, kind of in, in effect out of the smokestack of a, of a natural gas or a coal plant. I think when it comes to coal, that's mostly, that's pretty bogus. <laughs> when it comes to natural gas, it's more feasible. There's also ways to strip the natural gas out of um, the methane before you burn it. So natural gas is, is, is basically methane, and it's a, a mixture of carbon and hydrogen. If you take the carbon out and you store it somehow, and then you have pure hydrogen, well, you could burn that and not emit any carbon but you need a place to put all that carbon. You can pump it underground. There's a number of different approaches. They all cost money. And then there's another kind of carbon capture that involves directly removing carbon from the atmosphere, direct air capture. There's a bunch of different ways to do this. They are also expensive, but in the scheme of what we are likely to spend to try to reduce carbon emissions, some of the costs of this carbon capture are not completely unrealistic. And there's one approach that a friend of mine, a, a geology professor at Columbia, Peter Kellerman, we had on one of our early podcasts, he's working on a system that literally uses rocks. You, <laughs> There's certain kinds of rocks that absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. You could spread them out, you know, like in a big field uh, for uh, some period of months, and they would soak up a bunch of CO2, and then you collect them, you bake them for a little while, you bake that CO2 out of them. It sounds almost insanely simplistic, but it could really work. And I do believe we will get to the stage where we will also want this as one of a multiplicity of tools that we use to bring down carbon in the atmosphere. With many of these innovations, maybe all of them, uh, help from the government is is required a lot of spending and a lot of spending on what may turn out to be a waste uh, projects that don't work but we need substantial amounts of investment uh, of taxpayer dollars on these new new plans right because on its own, the market is not going to do this because uh, it may take 10 or 20 years for some of these types of innovation to have profitable results. Right. And I'm not opposed to uh, some government funding of research. 
What I am opposed to uh, uh, on the whole is the government picking the technology that it thinks will work in the future and enforcing a policy where only that technology is used. I, I would like to see a system in which the government helps get these new industries off the ground, the government helps fund research, but then stands back a little bit and lets the market sort out which ones really work. Philosophically, you and I have, have, have different approaches on how big government could be and, and whether most of the waste comes from the government or from private industry, but uh, that's a subject for a later podcast. I, this has been pretty polite. Well, you know, if you focus on what's your goal, how do we fix it? Yeah, that's our show. That would be a good week. name for a podcast. <laughs> Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.